Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is the word of the Lord. Moses was running for his life through the Sinai Desert, finally to the mountain. He saw a bush on fire, not being consumed by the fire. God spoke to him and told him to go back to Egypt, that God had heard the cries of his people. And after 400 years of their being enslaved, he was ready to set them free. He gave Moses a new name for himself. A name that only Moses knew now. Moses went back to Egypt and told the Pharaoh, This I am who I am God had sent him to free his people. The Pharaoh was not impressed. And Moses said, The Lord God will visit plague upon plague upon you until you let his people go free. The first one, the Pharaoh thought, was a coincidence. The second one, just a work of nature. The third, he wasn't convinced. But by the tenth, he was convinced and told the people they could go free. The Hebrew text says that they were moving out grandmothers and grandfathers, babes in arms, and came to the Sea of Reeds, looked around behind them and saw the armies of the Pharaoh, charioteers, swordsmen, men carrying bows and arrows. They were frightened out of their mind when suddenly the waters of the Sea of Reeds began to part. They walked through on dry land, and the waters closed up again behind them. They were sure now they were free. And they sang a hymn. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on this passage, says that this is one of the oldest passages in all of the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, one of the very first things written down, this poem of Moses. Dr. Everett Fox, a great Jewish scholar, says there are certain occasions when only poetry will say what needs to be said, and this was such an occasion. Rabbi Gunter Plout says that if you were to attend any synagogue or temple every Friday night for a whole year, you would hear the Torah, those first five scrolls, read front to back, but only twice during the year would you see the congregation slowly rise to their feet and stand during the reading. One of those would be when this song of Moses is read, and the other would be when the Ten Commandments are read. This must be a very important text. Let's take a look. The first thing I underlined is the part about, You are the God of my father, my mother. You are my God. The God of fathers and mothers, my God. Two months ago, my alma mater, the Perkins School of Theology at SMU in Dallas, 
had its annual Minister's Week, and this year decided they were going to focus the whole lectureship on one of the greatest professors they ever had, Dr. Albert Outler. They brought in various people who had known him intimately well, were very acquainted with his scholarship, and spoke about Albert Outler and his many contributions. When our School of Theology was able to lure Albert Outler away from Yale Divinity School to Dallas, Texas, it made it easier and easier to attract other big names in theology to that seminary. He was a real pioneer in that seminary, and the students who studied under him will forever appreciate him. When I was a student there, he was in Rome when I first arrived. Uh, Pope John XXIII would convene the huge Vatican councils, and Dr. Albert Outler had been invited to come to Rome to participate. Uh, Dr. Outler was magnificent in so many ways. His knowledge of Latin was really known far and wide in Christian circles. His translation of the Confessions of St. Augustine, still considered the very best ever done. Albert Outler was called upon at various times during that conference in Rome. Uh, Dr. Outler, would you remind us of the details of the Council of 1732 or 847 or whatever it was? And they would ask him. He told us when he got back to Dallas that one day he was in a small meeting away from the bigger meeting going on there in Vatican City. There were a group of Roman Catholic scholars and Protestant Christian scholars talking about one particular issue and how the wording could be made better. And finally, when they couldn't seem to come to agreement, one of these Protestants spouted, well, let's just vote, and the majority wins. To which the Catholic cardinal seated at the table said, but sir, the majority have already voted. They are dead. Our mothers and our fathers have voted. This week I got out my personal record book and started looking back at the names of persons whose funerals I've done during my ministry. At 18 years of age, you know, I was sent to two little churches. The smaller one averaged 16 every Sunday morning at 9.30. The bigger one averaged 56. And in six years, I had 40 funerals there. I have all the names written down in my book, the date for each one of the funerals. When the district superintendent had driven up to the drilling mud company where I was working that summer and had said, I need you to go pastor these two little churches, just before he drove away, I said, what if somebody dies? Oh, he said, nobody's going to die. And he drove away. I'd had 40 funerals there late on Sunday afternoons. I would often walk through the huge cemetery just outside the bigger one of those two little churches and read the names. <clears throat> fresh ones, fresh, freshly engraved stones. I knew them. And then I would look back at graves dating back before the war between the states. 1847, 1851, 1853. Read the names and wonder, what happened to this three-year-old child that it died? What happened to this teenager that she died? What happened to this young mother? this young father. When I was graduated from seminary, the bishop sent me to Houston, and I spent nine years as an associate pastor in Houston. I looked in my book. I did 223 funerals during that nine years. And then Bishop Paul Galloway, our beloved Bishop Galloway, sent me to Beaumont, Texas. It was a younger congregation, but in the seven years I was there, I did 114 more. 
and then I came here. I haven't done nearly as many funerals here as Art McGrew did or as Dr. Bill Tankersley is doing now. But I've done 502 here. 502 times from this church I've gone with you to the cemetery for people whom you and I loved and appreciated. All of those people have already voted. Can we say, this is my God, the God of my mother, the God of my father? Number two, this great hymn says, the Lord, this translates that name given to Moses at the burning bush, so it says, the I am who I am is a warrior. I am who I am is his name. Rabbi Nahum Sarna says that God Almighty will fight for his people He doesn't always fight as quickly as we would like. He sometimes delays far longer than we would have wished, but sooner or later, God will fight. Dr. Terence Fretheim, in his commentary, says, Notice here that God doesn't use conventional weapons of war when he decides to fight. For the charioteers of Egypt, he doesn't send other charioteers. For those who carry the long spears, he sends no men with spears. For those with bows and arrows, he sends no bows and arrow carriers. Instead, God deals with air and water, with fire. God deals with the shaking of the earth. God deals with things that belong to God. But God will fight for his people if necessary. The I am who I am is a warrior. Early Friday morning outline was done. I'd done all my reading and all my writing except for the illustrations. I was looking for illustrations. I'd turned on the radio in the background. NPR was on and Garrison Keeler was doing his remarks for the early morning and he said, April 11. April 11, the first American forces liberated the first death camp they came to. It was Buchenwald. There had been stories circulated that there were death camps, that the Nazis had set up death camps, that great numbers of people were being put to death, but no American forces had seen one of those camps until they arrived at Buchenwald. One of the teenagers they liberated was Elie Wiesel. Gail and I were at Auschwitz. There's much at Auschwitz about Elie Wiesel's stay there. He and his father were confined at Auschwitz for quite some time, but those of you who've read stories told by survivors know that in those last few weeks of the war, the Nazis were beginning to panic. Uh, The Allied forces were moving in from all sides. They could not gas and burn the people as quickly as they needed to, they thought, and so they were force marching them, trying to keep them ahead of the advancing armies. Gail and I have been down to the Vistula River where the Russians crossed. They were our allies in World War II, of course. The Russians were coming from the east. They crossed the Vistula. They liberated the camp of Majdanek. They were getting closer and closer to Birkenau and to Auschwitz. And so those who were still living were force marched. And so many died along the way. If you fell and couldn't get up, you were shot in the head. And they continued. Elie Wiesel was a young teenager. His father older, of course. His father so thin, so poor, no medical care, died in those last few weeks. 
Amy Wiesel was liberated, he would remember seeing a large black officer with the American Army who stood and silently wept when he saw these emaciated bodies at Buchenwald. But Elie Wiesel stood at the University of Tulsa and said, but we're still here. We are still here. We lost six and a half million, but we are still here. One of the oldest poems we have of the Israelites is this one that says, The I am who I am is a warrior. I am is his name. Number three, if you were listening carefully to what Janet Purinton was singing for you, what our great choir has sung for you, the hymns we were singing together, you discovered that Dr. Pensera had picked out the music today about a shepherd because this is the language of a shepherd at this point. And those whom you have redeemed, you have led. I remember our first trip to Israel when the bus was driving us in from the airport. I kept seeing these little streaks across the hills. Most of these hills, particularly south of Jerusalem, there are no trees. Uh, these are denuded hills. Uh, the grass is just a stubble in the seven months of the year when it does not rain. And yet you could see these little lines across the hills. And it was only the second or third day that we saw what was making the lines. It was the sheep. The sheep. They are not driven in Israel. They are led. The shepherd takes them out of the sheepfold and calls them. And they follow the shepherd. They follow a couple of weeks ago, our Debbie Peterson had asked us if I would answer questions on a Wednesday night from our middle schoolers here at Boston Avenue. I do that with the confirmation class every year. I do that with senior highs from time to time. Debbie wanted me to do that with our middle schoolers. Uh, the week before, they had all been given three by five cards and told they could write down any question they wanted to ask me. They didn't have to put a name, no identification whatsoever. I would be glad to deal with every question. And Debbie passed them on to me a few days before so that I could have a look at them before our Wednesday evening together. I was amazed at several who ask about their friends whom their parents do not like. One of our youngsters in eighth grade, maybe seventh, had said, My friends lie a lot, but I like them. My mother and father do not like them. What do you think? What do you think? Who's leading you? A new movie opened this week called Smart People. Dennis Quaid plays a professor. You and I have seen movies like this one in many ways. Um, Dennis Quaid is in this uh, professor role, absent-minded. Gail would love him. She's always concerned about folks who can't park between the lines. And Dennis Quaid pulls up his old beaten-up squab across two parking places because he's not paying attention and doesn't really care. He's a widower. He's unhappy. He's miserable. He's got two grown kids, uh, early young adults. The young woman who plays the daughter played Juno in the movie that was so popular to so many last year. Uh, He's been working on a manuscript for years that he can't seem to get finished. He's sort of drifting, going nowhere. In one of the early scenes of the movie, he turns to this daughter of his and says, Vanessa, you look so unhappy. 
And she says, and why not? You're my role model. So who's leading you? That's the question. Who's leading you? Friends who will not lead you in the right direction? A father or mother who is not leading you in the right direction? Co-workers, friends, people with whom you play, people who live near you, who are not leading you in the right direction? Or will you seek direction from the shepherd who will lead you in paths of right standing? Who will lead you beside still waters? Who will help you find rest? Who will be in that valley dark as death with you? With a club in one hand and a long and crooked stick in the other, flailing away at your enemies while pulling you closer to himself? Is that the one who leads you? Hopefully so. Number four. If you read my column in the paper this week, you know that I said any time we deal with the Hebrew portion of the Bible, we should maintain the integrity of the writer. I believe that very much. The thing that draws us to this passage in this season of the year is the line about God not only leads us to these wonderful places where there is good drinking water and green grass and we can lie down and rest or if things are really tough in that dark valley he will be there with us but it also goes on to say and leads us to God's own holy abode the word holy means set apart that that place set apart for God So I was interested very much in seeing what the rabbis believe this means. And one of the rabbis, Gunter Plaut, said very clearly, we cannot be sure. It just isn't specific enough. Uh, Down through the centuries in the Talmud, various rabbis have had a go at this. And some say, well, it meant the holy mountain. God is going to lead them back to that mountain where he confronted Moses in the burning bush, where he will give Moses the Ten Commandments. That's the place. But others have said, no, no, that's too specific. God isn't going to leave the people there at Mount Sinai. God's aim is to get them back into Canaan, to get them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. That's God's holy abode. One of the rabbis said, no, I don't think so. I think it's a little more specific than that. I We're told that Moses was instructed by God to move the people whenever the water was running out or they needed more green grass. They were to pack up and move uh, somewhere else. For 40 years they did this in the Sinai Desert. But that every time the tents were pitched again, there was to be one tent just outside all the others. And that only Moses was to go into that tent. And there God would speak to him. It was the tent of presence. And God would speak to Moses, and Moses would come out and tell his brother Aaron, and Aaron would tell the people what needed next to be done. God's holy abode was the tent of presence. But others said, well, no, it was Canaan. Well, maybe this wasn't written quite as early as we think. Maybe it really means the temple that Solomon had built on the top of the holy mountain. But once our Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead, it took on a new meaning for us. 
The temple no longer stands on the top of the mountain in Jerusalem. It has not been there since the year 70 in the first century of this common era. There is no temple there. There is no tent of the presence just outside all the other tents. The land of Canaan today is a war zone in many ways. What is the holy abode of God? That set apart place. But it's interesting when you look in the dictionary... Gail gave me a big, fat, unabridged one some years ago, and I opened it up again this week and took a look there. And the word abode, of course, comes from the same root as the word abide. Abide and abode come from the same roots. And so if you look up the word abide in a big concordance and see all the places it's used, you see it's used again and again in the Gospel according to St. John. On that Thursday evening when Jesus was betrayed and in the garden arrested, he first celebrated Passover with those who were with him. Uh, The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are very clear about what took place there, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine. But John talks about washing feet. Jesus took a basin and a towel and washed their feet, and then he said to them, Abide in me. I will abide in you. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, but I've told you. Scott Walker is a minister down in Waco, Texas, and he's written that when he was in seminary, and one of his courses was the Gospel according to St. John, uh, he was studying under the tutelage of a professor from England, Dr. George Beasley Murray. Dr. George Beasley Murray said, this is our word. The word abide is our word. It's English. Let me tell you what it means. We English, he said, like to walk. Uh, We like to walk beautiful pastures. We like to walk along streams and rivers, around lakes. We like to walk in beautiful, beautiful woods. But we finally get tired. And when we are really tired and we sit down against a big, strong tree, and just lean back totally and completely. We abide. We abide. Or he said, you finally get home from your walk and you have a good bath and something to eat and you go to bed. And you just stretch out on your bed. You are supporting nothing yourself You just stretch out with everything you've got and sort of sink into your mattress. You're abiding. You're abiding. You are completely dependent upon, leaning on, being supported by something else. Scott Walker says he has a young woman in his church down in Waco who's probably dying. She has four young children. Everybody's praying for her, everybody. Scott said I was holding her hand in her room one day and saying another prayer for her. And I said, Lord, help us abide in you as you said you abide in us. When he ended the prayer, she said, how does one abide? How does one abide? And so he told her what Dr. George Beasley Murray had said, went through that whole explanation, and she said, okay, 
I think I have it. And he said from that time on, every time he enters her room, if she's lying on one side or the other with IVs in her arms, she will immediately roll over on her back and spread out her arms and look him in the eye and say, I'm abiding. I'm abiding. And if we abide in him, who is our Lord, we are promised a place in the holy abode of God Almighty.